It is suffering that causes the gospel to go out. Think back to to Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, as he is stoned. That is the catalyst that causes the gospel to spread beyond Jerusalem. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Shipwrecks and Snake Bites from Pastor Paul Twiss. His text is the book of Acts, chapters 27 and 28, the final journey of the Apostle Paul, a captive heading to Rome. Pastor Paul has joined us today to discuss this passage. And Pastor, I have a question for you. Yesterday in your opening segment, you referred to Luke's narrative as a strange chapter on the end of this book about Paul and a snake. Why do you say that? Matt, it is strange, but it's also thrilling in terms of gospel proclamation. At the end of Acts, we see a terrifying calamity unfold, and then just as they apparently find safety on the island, Paul is bitten by a deadly snake. He's not phased. He understands that it merely opens the door for further gospel proclamation amongst the people of Malta. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Always good to have you with us. Now here's part two of Shipwrecks and Snake Bites. So we'll begin by thinking through what I call the cultural context. We'll begin by thinking through the cultural context, that is, what was the cultural milieu into which Luke was writing as he penned this narrative? There are at least three points of information that is very helpful to know as we read 27 and 28. The first is that in Luke's time, there was a pervasive belief in what we call divine retribution. Luke was writing in a day and age where there was a pervasive belief in divine retribution, meaning it was believed in Luke's day that if you did something wrong, one of the gods would cause harm wreak havoc in your life. Or let's flip that the other way and say, if something catastrophic were to happen in your life, the common interpretation in Luke's day would have been that somehow you had offended one of the gods. Divine retribution. Secondly, it's important to know that in Luke's day, there was a pervasive belief in what we call religious pollution religious pollution, and that is the belief that even if you were innocent, if you were to associate with somebody who had offended the gods, you would now be susceptible to that same chaos that was coming their way. You hadn't necessarily offended them, but by virtue of association with the guilty party, you were standing in line for that same punishment, religious pollution. And then thirdly, and and most simply, in Luke's day, It was understood that sea travel was very, very dangerous. It's not what it is today. To go to sea, especially at certain times of year, would have been a perilous endeavor. And so when you put all of those factors together, you start to see the significance of this shipwreck narrative at the end of Acts. We actually have a biblical precedent for these principles coming together in the Old Testament. You may have already been thinking of it as I was describing those factors, and it is, of course, in the book of Jonah. 
There's a man who is guilty, who has offended the one true God. There are the sailors who are innocent and yet associate with Jonah. And sure enough, the storm comes. The situation is not all that different here, except for the fact that the question is still out with the jury as to Paul's innocence. Trial after trial after trial. Is this man guilty of the charges that have been brought against him? Then he appeals to Caesar, and he gets on a ship, and off they go. Paul, the accused, with many innocent sailors, and they go to sea. And we notice this wonderfully suspenseful narrative that Luke writes for us. He begins with Paul advising the crew, don't do this. This is perilous. I don't think we should go. And of course, they ignore him and they set sail very quickly. Danger comes. We read about the tempestuous wind, the northeaster, striking the boat. It actually occurred to me when I studied this narrative that I have sailed this portion of the oceans. And more than that, I've experienced the northeaster. It was many years ago, and I wasn't on a small sailing ship. Praise the Lord, I was on an aircraft carrier. And I remember very clearly as we were passing along this portion of the ocean, the navigator of the carrier made an announcement as to the strength of the wind in case anybody wanted to go up onto the flight deck and experience it. And so I did. I went up with some buddies of mine. We opened the hatch onto the flight deck, and we couldn't stand up. We laid down on the deck because the wind was so strong. And like fools, we crawled up the flight deck right up to the very edge of the ski ramp that the planes would launch off. And we lay there looking directly into this wind for some 10 minutes. We couldn't speak because it was so noisy. And when we retreated and went back down, my hair was up and my face was the same color as my hair. <laughs> had windburn from 10 minutes. It was an incredibly strong wind. What we were able to do because of the size of our vessel was to turn into the wind, which is the best thing to do when you come across such powerful force. And Luke draws attention to the fact that we could not turn into the wind. Literally, he says, we couldn't turn eye to eye with the wind. And so they were at the mercy of the wind, hitting side onto the vessel. And so this is really, really bad news. And at halfway through the chapter, Luke writes, verse 20, all our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. The situation had become so desperate that everyone on board had given up. Now, remember the cultural context into which Luke is writing. The interpretation of events thus far would have been, this man is guilty. We are suffering because of him. The gods are offended. We're at sea. This man is guilty. And then Luke turns the corner. In this wonderfully told story, he turns the corner at 21 and following, and Paul gets up now and makes an impassioned speech. And his constant plea to the sailors is, be encouraged. He says, an angel of my God visited me last night and he assured me no one's going to lose their life. Therefore, be encouraged. Be encouraged, he says. And soon enough, Paul is able to break bread with the sailors, 
Give thanks to God and don't miss the fact that Luke says they were all encouraged. It seems to be that shortly after, the sailors had changed their mind concerning Paul's innocence. It seems to be just towards the end of the chapter that as the sailors are encouraged and willing to break their fast and eat with Paul, they have decided differently about this man. And thus the rhetorical punchline at the end of the chapter comes when Luke says, so it was that all were brought safely to land. All were brought safely to land. Within a context where if you were guilty, the gods would come after you. If you associated with the guilty, you also would be punished. And seafaring was a bad idea, especially at this time of year. Luke says all were brought safely to land and there is his declaration of Paul's innocence. This man is not guilty. And then we move into chapter 28 and we have this wonderful drama being played out between the Maltese and Paul. And the important thing to notice here is what we know and what they don't know. They don't know Paul's history. They don't know all the trials he stood. They don't know about the shipwreck. They don't know about his speeches. They don't know the drama of 27. They're ignorant. We stand in a very privileged position knowing all of those things. Luke assumes that by this point, with the sailors, we have been encouraged and persuaded of Paul's innocence. And so 28 is not there so much to further persuade us but simply for our enjoyment. We go into this chapter and we see this point of irony when he says the barbarians showed us kindness. And then this snake fastens onto Paul's hand and in keeping with the cultural context, the Maltese jump to the proper conclusion. They say he's a murderer. He's committed awful crimes. Notice how they appeal to their God. Justice in your Bible might have a capital J, and so it should. They're not appealing to just a, a sense of justice, but to the goddess justice. Now, we know that we were never out to prove that Paul wasn't a murderer. We chuckle at their overreaction. And then the snake causes Paul no harm. He can actually shake it off and be absolutely fine. And so then they swing to the other extreme and say, he's a God. We were never trying to prove that he was a God. And so we just get to delight with Luke at this little incident based upon, predicated upon the fact that we know Paul is innocent, testified to in chapter 27. And so much is his innocence clear to us that then we see he has a freedom of a, of a healing ministry on the island. And he finishes the book preaching the gospel. He is under house arrest in Rome. Consider that. But it's a very peculiar kind of house arrest because he has the freedom to do the very thing that got him in trouble in the first place. Notice what is not at the end of Acts. Notice what is missing. We don't get told anything about Paul's trial with Caesar. There's no mention of it. 
And some scholars would say, well, you know, Luke probably wrote a third volume that we don't have. Or maybe Luke left it off intentionally. And he's making a point by not including it. We don't need the trial with Caesar. We don't need to read of it because we can see this man's innocence. Now, what is all of this to us? What significance does this long narrative have that clearly points out Paul's innocence? And the answer is to understand that as this man is vindicated, so also is his message. With the vindication of the man comes the vindication of his message. The gospel is doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. There is no shipwreck nor snakebite that can thwart the progression of the gospel. All the way back in chapter 1, Jesus said to his disciples, you need to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And sure enough, the structure of the book is one that follows exactly that path. And we see it go out in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then we're wondering if it will get to the ends of the earth. And we run into problems when Paul starts facing all these trials. But 27 and 28 are Luke's way of saying the gospel has done exactly what Jesus said it would do. You cannot thwart the progress of the gospel. And so the book concludes with the gospel being preached in the ends of the earth. And it's not that Luke is calling us to take up the apostolic ministry. We understand that the apostolic office has finished. But as you consider your situation, your circumstances, the way God has worked in your life, as you consider his providence in your life, you can be encouraged. You can be greatly encouraged to know that the gospel is doing in your life exactly what God intended for it to do. The gospel is working itself out both in you and through you in exact accordance with God's plan. I first worked through this text with a group of men at the seminary. And one of the constant burdens that I feel there is simply to adjust expectations. I see many men go through and, and, and the three, four years they spend there are a high point in their ministry careers, constant fellowship, coming to class and learning every day and, and, and we send them out and you see the, the hopes and the expectations of going to a church and, and preaching the word and seeing revival and many being added to their number. And I have such a, a wonderful ministry and there won't be any hiccups or problems. And I do think part of the, the job that we have is simply to set expectations. And to say, it might be that the Lord wants you to have a very small ministry. And that's okay. It might be that the Lord ordains for you a ministry where you preach the gospel tirelessly until you die. And you never see someone come to salvation. And that could be God's best for you. It might be that the Lord is calling you to work with a small group of believers in one area of their sanctification for your whole life. And you need to delight in that, because that's God's wisdom. It may be that you have a ministry where you see many come to saving faith. Praise the Lord. 
But whatever your ministry looks like, you know and you trust day by day that this is God's plan for the gospel in me and through me. And the same applies to us here this evening. Whatever station the Lord has called you to, whatever are your pains and your sufferings, whatever trials he has brought upon you, that is his plan for your life. And the gospel is doing its work, not in spite of your circumstances, but in perfect accordance with them. And we can be greatly encouraged by that. Now, there's more to it, and now I want to move on to a second layer of context, as it were, and think about what I call the broader scriptural context, the broader scriptural context. There is an understanding that as we read through the Acts narrative, Luke has purposefully presented the ministry of the apostles in accordance with the ministry of the Lord Jesus in his gospel. Remember, Acts is a two-volume work, one continuous story. And the common consensus as we read Acts is that Luke has made particular efforts to present the ministry of Peter in the first half of the book and the ministry of Paul in the second half of the book in such a way that their lives mirror the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. So if you were to sit down and read all the way through Acts, it is entirely appropriate that you read many passages thinking, huh, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That's what Luke is trying to do. I wonder even if you noticed in our text this evening how many allusions there were to things that Jesus had done. It begins perhaps when Paul gives his speech and he says to them in verse 22, there'll be no loss of life among you take heart, and then he goes on and says, not a hair from your head will fall. There won't be one hair that falls from your head in verse 34. This is a quotation from Luke's gospel when Jesus says the same words to his disciples when he predicts future trouble for them. Not a hair will perish from the head of any of you, says Jesus. And then Paul gives thanks and he breaks bread and he eats with these men. And the way in which Luke writes this story is strangely evocative of at least two different meals in Luke's gospel. And the commentators go back and forth. Did Luke mean to present this as a communion meal, that last supper that Jesus had when he broke bread and he gave thanks? The difficulty with that is that Paul is having bread with pagan sailors, and the communion meal would be for the believing community. Perhaps more instructive is to note that Paul gave thanks, he broke the bread, many people were fed, Luke draws particular attention to the number, 276 in all, so much so that at the end they had leftovers. They threw the wheat overboard. And I think it's right that this seems to echo when Jesus fed a multitude. When Paul is on the island of Malta, he has a ministry with Publius's father, who is laying sick with a fever. Paul visits him. He prays. He puts his hand on him. The man is healed. And then many from the town come. 
which is exactly the way Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4 with Simon's mother. Now, what's the point of all of this? On one level, it is simply to make the, the point that these men are carrying on where Jesus left off. They're picking up the baton and they're carrying on with Jesus' ministry. Back in chapter 1, Jesus commissions the witnesses. A witness in the book of Acts is someone who has seen the risen Lord Jesus. And they are to simply do what he has been doing. They've seen him, now they're to go and do likewise. And with all of the allusions through the book of Acts back to Luke's gospel, Luke is continuously making the point, these apostles are doing nothing different to that which Jesus did. They're just carrying on his ministry. But it actually goes a bit further than that. See, if you really start to probe the connections that Luke makes, what you see is that he places a particular emphasis on one portion of Jesus' life. He keeps drawing from one portion in particular, and that is Jesus' passion. Luke is particularly keen to show that the apostles are experiencing the same kind of suffering as the Lord Jesus. And that is exactly the means by which the gospel is spreading in the book of Acts. One commentator says, you cannot understand the book of Acts. It makes no sense without the theme of suffering. It is suffering that causes the gospel to go out. Think back to, to Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, as he is stoned. That is the catalyst that causes the gospel to spread beyond Jerusalem. And in fact, when you really probe those relationships, you see that what Luke is doing is he, in turn, is echoing the ministry of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. Luke is particularly keen to show us Jesus in the light of the suffering servant. This is him, says Luke. He has come to be pierced for our transgressions. And then the apostles come and Jesus ascends. He is no longer here with us bodily. The apostles are now it. They're carrying the baton and Luke says it's no different with them. They also must suffer, not to complete some kind of incomplete work of the Lord Jesus, but to carry on the progression of the gospel. And there's echoes of it even here in these last two chapters. It's telling that the, the narrative begins with this verb deliver or handed over, verse 1 of chapter 27. To be handed over in Luke's gospel is a telling echo back to the servant song of Isaiah 53, who was handed over. It's a verb that occurs over and over again in the reference to the suffering servant. And then in 28, Paul recounts his story and he uses that same verb again. Even the logic of the narrative parallels the logic of the servant. This is why Paul concludes with the preaching of Isaiah 6. Think about just how curious that is. The book of Acts ends with the beginning of the book of Isaiah. And Paul is saying Isaiah's mission was to preach salvation to the Jews. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Dr. Luke wrote with what Pastor Paul calls a cultural context. Luke was writing when the concept of divine retribution was widespread, a pagan belief that if you did something wrong, one of the gods would punish you. 
How grateful we are the one true God saves and saved Paul and his companions from a great tragedy for the glorification of Christ. Are you living for his glory under this abundant grace? If you'd like to learn how to follow Jesus' great commission, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts for archives of gospel-centered content. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Tomorrow, it's part three, our conclusion in the series, Shipwrecks and Snake Bites. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.